Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board has decided to end their police liaison program. What takes its place? China is doubling down on its bullying of Canada, and a family member of one of the two Michaels speaks up. And the borders between the United States and Canada are still closed. But can you get in or out? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, after a vote, the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board has decided to end the police liaison program. Cam Galindo is a trustee, also stood with those protesting outside. He is a trustee at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board for Wards 8 and 9 and is with us now. Cam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. So are you surprised the way this vote went last night? Oh, wow, that's a, a good question right off the start. I, I don't think so, no. I think, you know, what, what we saw in the community was uh, some very effective community organizing by uh, groups that historically have been marginalized. And uh, what we did at the school board last night was we heard those voices, we amplified those voices, and we realized that we have some pretty serious concerns with the liaison program program uh, in its current state. Uh, And for that reason, we also acknowledge that the role of police in schools has evolved from its original mandate, as was mentioned by staff at the board. Uh, And bottom line, we don't need police officers in our schools to uh, teach uh, our students about bullying, vaping, social media, uh, violence, mentorship, we, we've got people who can already do that. We've got some great community organizers, organizations uh, who are already working with our school board to make sure that those gaps are filled. Uh, and the notion that uh, schools uh, are not as safe when police aren't in them is, is wrong. There's no evidence that shows that uh, police officers in schools do, in fact, make schools safer. Um, at the end of the day, we still abide by a ministry protocol document that dictates that if there is a safe schools issue, police will still respond. Students are just as safe as ever before the termination of the program as they will be after the termination of the program. So I think history was, was made last night. I think we, we amplified the voices of many people who normally aren't heard at the decision uh, table, and I'm, I'm, very, I'm happy. I, I think uh, the board is happy and, and the community is happy as well. How you, you talked about the original mandate had changed. Elaborate on that. What do you mean? So what staff presented last night was that the program has evolved beyond the intended community policing model, and as a result, many of the black and racialized students and families have started or stated that it's having a negative impact on their overall well-being in our schools when young people feel unsafe by seeing a uniformed officer in the hallways, patrolling the hallways with a vice principal. That's not necessarily the best model for uh, or for creating a safe space for our students to to grow in. I think, you know, there's obviously a broader discussion that's happening across North America uh, around the future of policing in our communities. And uh, is there... Is there other discussions to be held? Absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, the original mandate to have liaison officers in schools is, is tied to uh, the notion that uh, it's it's good to engage with police officers at a young age to get to know police officers. I certainly uh, support that, uh, but it doesn't have to happen in our schools. Um, when there were gaps to be filled around community safety, educating around community safety, drugs, vaping, uh, safe activity on social media. That was a gap that would normally be filled by police officers, but uh, it's now since evolved, and most of our curriculum, if not the entire curriculum, covers that now, uh, where we have experts who would come into the classroom or the teachers can speak to those experiences now without the need of having a police officer enter the classroom. Um, so I, I think then that's where the mandates evolve now, and, and because there isn't uh, and there hasn't been any um, you know, achievable goals or units of measurements or even data collection on how frequent these police officers uh, would be in our schools. There were some serious concerns around uh, why are we seeing that students are feeling unsafe when police are in schools when you would think that police officers would make schools safer, that their presence would make schools safer. And we're seeing research now that backs up the notion that that's not actually the case, that for many marginalized populations, uh, it's not uh, a good idea. 
Hamilton has a very I remember, population. Yeah, go ahead. I remember when these programs started, Cam, um, really, I mean, in, in, the, in the cities where there was massive problems, I guess the idea was to make the schools safer, but, uh, safer rather. But from what I remember, when all of these programs were implemented, it was, as you said, create a li- liaison and communication between uh, the student body in the, and the police. Uh, obviously, is that program a failure? Why, why did that not work? So I'll, I'll provide some clarification. The line of communication that our schools will have with Hamilton Police will still be there. If there is ever a safe schools issue at any of our schools, the police will still respond. Where the relationship uh, becomes a bit more vague, and this is where we've not acknowledged a few concerns, is um, it, it really depends on the autonomous relationship between individual liaison officers and the administration at particular schools across the city. Um, you, you'll have certain schools where police tend to have a more active presence, and then you'll have schools where the police officer only shows up maybe once or twice a year, and the students see that. Um, what we're seeing from data that's coming out of Toronto and Peel is that uh, when they cut ties with the school resource officer program uh, or when they have police no longer in the schools, the, the percentage of, of crime either decreases or it stays the same. Crime isn't happening in our schools. Crime is happening outside of the school setting. Uh, and I, I think just only now are we starting to realize that. And it isn't until uh, we start having broader discussions around community policing that we start to realize, you know what, maybe it, maybe it isn't such a good idea to have police officers in our schools. Maybe it's having a negative impact on the overall well-being of marginalized communities. Uh, and that's what we heard last night from staff, from students, from parents uh, and community members and I'm happy with the decision that we did. So at the end of the day, it still does nothing to help the liaison between the, the, the student body and, and the police service. So therefore, is this program a failure? And what replaces that? What do we do to keep those lines of communication open? Yeah, I think that's where, that's where we get into um, I think a more broader discussion around what does the future look like for the police liaison program in Hamilton? Uh, It is ministry mandated by the province of Ontario, uh, and I think we're going to start to have broader discussions across the province, not just at the municipal level across the province, but at the provincial level as well. What is the role and mandate of police officers in our schools? I think that there's been aspects of the program that were successful, and we've seen that from a mentorship piece, but... Uh, we've also seen uh, that it hasn't worked in other aspects. And when we weigh the options, we got to make the right decision. I think that this opens the opportunity for more consultation, for review. Part of the motion that was passed last night was to ask staff to review and gather input on the liaison program uh, and to identify the gaps with respect to uh, what gaps that program will, will leave behind uh, from a student opportunity uh, perspective. And I think there's there's two overall uh, there's two important reasons that this is this is good for the community. One, we collect data uh, that we can then share with the province and other municipalities on why it was good that we canceled the program, that we terminated the program. The other reason that it's important that we conduct this review is because it lays the groundwork for replacing the program if needed down the road. If we realize that we suddenly need someone to talk about, let's say, health and active transportation, what can we have or who can we have come to the school who can talk about that that isn't necessarily a police officer? Um, so bottom line, I think it's a good step forward. I think uh, the Hamilton Water District School Board uh, is is a leader in the province in, on, on this topic, and I think we'll, we'll slowly see this conversation start popping up across the province, and it's certainly a good sign. Uh, again, I go back to the time when these programs were implemented and they were supposed to be a savior. They, you know, this was, you know, the police need better training. The police need to find out what's going on. The police, it seems we're asking them to do more. Now we're untangling that or we're asking them to do more and yet we're defunding them. So are you concerned that once these holes are created that they won't be filled with something that is that is better than what was there? No, absolutely not. I think, you know, it, it, it goes to the argument around, do we take proactive measures in the community to curve an increase in violence or to decrease um, criminal activity among young populations, or 
do we react by adding more police officers, by putting more police officers in the school? Um, it's, you know, we heard from parents over throughout the bullying review process that we're doing that they'd like to see more police officers and even metal detectors in school. But again, we don't have research that backs that up. In fact, there's research that says that that actually makes it worse. Uh, the crime isn't, you know, police officers don't, don't prevent crime. Police officers deal with crime after it's happened. Yeah. What we, and they're not social workers. The way to reduce crime in the community is by preventing it and creating the opportunities that young people need to succeed in the first place to learn and educate uh, themselves without the need for you're going to get arrested if you do something wrong or without the fear of, of changing their, their, the way they act in school because there's a police officer there. Uh, I think that by creating opportunities for growth and uh, positive culture and well-being, uh, does, you, you don't need police officers to do that. It's easier for us to do that when police officers aren't there. Uh, and that's why you know, we open up this whole uh, discussion around uh, what's the broader uh, role of police officers in our community. Do we need more social workers or do we need more police officers? Do we need more uh, psychiatrists or, or, or opportunities? How can we make sure that we're providing proactive opportunities for people in our community, young people in the community to succeed uh, so that they don't resort to violence? When the violence happens, in my perspective, that's why we need police officers, but it certainly doesn't prevent crime from happening. Cam, and I guess the the point that I'm trying to make here is this program was supposed to be proactive. It was the community that asked for this. A lot of these programs are generated this way. Uh, so now we're saying, well, that was a bad program, but it was, in, it, it, again, it was it was the community that asked for these sorts of things. So how do you balance what works, what doesn't work? And and what people want and, and what they don't want, because, again, the I, I don't think, you know, like it, it was it was it was a policy. It was proactive thinking that got us to this program in the first place. Now we're saying that those programs don't work. What mm-hmm. what is the answer here? Mm-hmm. And that's just the evolution of evidence based decision making. We make decisions based on the evidence and the information that we have on hand at the time when the program was implemented. I would imagine that that was what folks figured would be the best approach for dealing with the issues that we had in the community. What we know now is it worked in some aspects, but not every aspect. And in fact, there were serious concerns, and that's what we're hearing from the community now, and that's why we're moving forward with this decision to terminate the program based on evidence-based research and data. Uh, we, we have more information now more than ever, and the access to information allows us to really understand the impacts that, that these decisions have on our communities. And, and you know, some people would question why are we reviewing a program that we're terminating? Well, because we want to make sure that uh, we, one, made the right decision, which we believe we do. Uh, Two, how can we share that information with other people so that they can make the right decision and and inform their process for how they're going to move forward once the termination is complete? Uh, And for us, it will lay the the foundation for future, future discussions on what uh, a similar program, if not a replacement, will look like if we need it. So we don't know what the evidence says yet about these programs. That's what is going to take further research. Because, again, I keep coming back to, um, you know, this was supposed to be a good idea. Obviously, things have changed. But what is the proactive measure, evidence-based, that replaces this? Um, You know, again, many are saying defund police, but where does that go? What's the solution? What's the the program that fills that plate, that hole, while that happens? Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, no, no, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? I think yeah. um yeah, I mean it's like we're shutting off the tap before we found another water source almost. Well, and I mean that's that's why we usually resort to uh, the experts, right? This is when we usually look to the academics uh, at the universities to say what's the research saying? What's what's the sociology saying? I I um I think that's part of a broader discussion that we're having as a community. Um Bottom line, our mandate as a school board is to make sure that we're protecting uh, the students and that we have the best interest in students in mind. Uh, and that was the foundation and the basis for our decision last night. Uh, when it comes to the broader discussion that I'm sure students will be having uh, when September starts with their teachers around what is the future of policing, I think that's something that, that uh, a lot of people have opinions on. I certainly have my opinions on that. Uh, but in the meantime, what I can do is, as a trustee is amplify the voices that are often missing from the decision-making table. Uh, and, and I think that's 
that to me is, is what's important. I think that's why I was elected to serve uh, the folks of Stony Creek. And hopefully we can get those the, the same community involved with uh, some of the solutions and and, oh, and move forward on this. Cam, got to let you go here. We're out of time. Cam Galindo has okay. been with us, trustee at the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board for wards eight and nine. Cam, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with this. Thanks Moving so forward. Luck. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, lots of uh, chatter in the last couple of days in regard to China, our relationship with them, and, of course, the two Michaels uh, being formally charged, uh, uh, obviously in retaliation to uh, the Huawei CFO and uh, her extradition case to the United States continuing. Uh, Now we have had uh, one of the spouses of one of the two Michaels speak up and add a certain uh, certainly a more personal note to all of this. Uh, We'll talk about that as well in just a sec. But first, here's what the Prime Minister had to say when it came to hostage diplomacy and handing one over for the other two or vice versa. No, we're not considering that. Canada has a strong and independent justice system. We will ensure that it goes through its proper forces and uh, anyone who's uh, considering weakening our values or weakening the independence of our justice system doesn't understand the importance of standing strong on our principles and our values. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. He is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good to hear from you, Scott. Nice uh, your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Your thoughts on um, now hearing from the family of uh, in, in regard to the spouse of one of the two Michaels. How does that change the scenario here? Well, I think certainly if the government had felt that this matter of, of Mr. Kovrick and Mr. Saver being subject to arbitrary detainment would just fade away from the public interest, that has not been the case. And certainly I think that the family of Mr. Kovrick and Mr. Saver have shown great forbearance in presumably taking the advice of the government, which would be to keep quiet and let the government do their work in trying to get the release of Culverick's favor. But maybe by about day 565, they reckoned that this was starting to wear a bit thin and that there didn't seem to be any progress towards Culverick's favor's release. And indeed, last week, um, they were charged with serious charges of espionage and almost inevitably will face a very harsh sentence for it. So so now um, Mr. Kovrick's uh, estranged wife has come forward, and certainly, you know, I think all our hearts go out to the friends and family of those two gentlemen. Um, she is proposing that there be a debate on whether Ms. Mung should be um, released in the Canadian national interest, which would be with within the powers of the Minister of Justice. Um, you know, one can fully understand why she... Uh, why she uh, would want that, because she wants her loved one home. But uh, if we give in to coercion and blackmail in this case, I think it really emboldens the Chinese regime to do more of this kind of gross violation of normal diplomatic protocols. And uh, so I I, I think with regret, uh, that's not the way to go. But the government taking more vigorous measures to counter this and to acknowledge that their strategy over the past 570 days has failed, uh, that's another issue altogether. You talked about this being coercion and and blackmail, and and obviously the issue here is if we let her go, what's the Allied response? This is a national treaty, and uh, on the other side is this hostage diplomacy. They're not happy with us, so uh, they take a they they take a a hostage. Uh, This question it's come up a few times. It's coming up again. I've had even discussions with academics on this. Um, is this a viable option or is this wishful thinking? And and if so, why do we keep bringing it up? Because at the end of the day, if we succumb to this, uh, are we not opening up the door for uh, hostage diplomacy, taking people off the street whenever China doesn't like the way the rest of the world is thinking? And we've certainly seen plenty of evidence of that in in the near, in the past future, or sorry, in in the recent past. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question really is, um, perhaps the government um, could have been more forthcoming about this option for the Minister of Justice to, to scotch the process. You know, um, Deputy Prime Minister uh, Christia Freeland, when she was Foreign Minister, kept repeating the formula that Canada is a rule of law country. Well, we know that, 
but our law does allow for the possibility of um, of the Minister of Justice intervening. But that being said, clearly it would be a mistake for the Minister of Justice to intervene based on, on menacing coercion from um, an authoritarian government. So, you know, it's not a question of is it possible. The question really is, is it a good idea in the Canadian national interest? And I, I think, you know, the government could have done a lot more to try and incentivize the Chinese regime to release Kovrigan's favor and chose not to do so, I think because of the pressure from the business community that if Canada did anything that makes the Chinese regime unhappy, engages in any kind of retaliation or cracks down on Chinese espionage in Canada or, um, you know, uh, opens up the Magnitsky list and sanctions Chinese officials who are complicit in the uh, concentration camps for Turkic Muslims in the northwest of China or did anything to protest vigorously China's violation of the UN Convention of All the Sea and their expansion of territory into um, areas very close to the territorial waters of other countries and so on and so on, that, um, you know, that that would negatively impact on business and that if we made concessions to the Chinese and treated them the way that they wanted to be treated, that they would look with favor on us and then um, listen to our, our logic mm. that, the, that, the, that the detainment of Kovrigan's favor was a gross violation of international law and that there is no legal basis for holding them. So, you know, the policy failed. I think too much emphasis was put on the economic factor. And now we're in this situation where Kovrigan's favor are about to face a harsh prison sentencing and uh, no sign of the Chinese regime um, backing down in any way, shape, or form. And in the end, isn't using this option choosing between either China or the United States, and isn't that choice obvious? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of economic retaliation, you know, we only do 4% of our of our exports to China, and we do 78% to the United States, so... And, and aside from which, you know, the United States does not arbitrarily kidnap and torture people to yeah. send a message to the Canadian government. It's, there really is no uh, moral equivalent between the government of the United States and that of um, of China. I mean, many Canadians may not like uh, Donald Trump as president, but the U.S. system is still a democracy with an independent rule of law, and the president is not the only political actor there. Uh, China doubling down and saying this is a double standard. They sh- they show no signs of letting up at this point. They don't, but I think there is nobody in China who believes that there is any basis for detaining Kovrigan's favor. So I think they have become more and more defensive in their more and more extreme statements. You know, the day before Justice Holmes handed down the decision um, that that the extradition hearing can go ahead, that that the that the extradition request in the United States is justified in terms of our treaty obligation. Um, Ms. Meng and her friends staged a sort of photo op where they were, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing victory signs on the on the steps of the B.C. Superior Courthouse. I think they genuinely believed that we that their hostage diplomacy had worked and that Ms. Meng would be released and that would solve the matter. When that didn't happen, I think to save face, they had to do something more. So they then took out the option that they had previously, which is to say we've been investigating the case of Kovrigan's favor. There is not enough evidence to take them to trial. Therefore, they can go home. That's no longer an option because it's gone into the trial phase. So they, they're essentially shooting themselves in the foot and getting themselves in a worse and worse situation that's now raising the attention of other nations particularly uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and the Europeans, who are concerned that if China can do this to Canada, will they start doing it to other countries as well? So really, at the end of the day, the whole idea of Canada just waving a wand and dropping all of this is really not an option. What about the option of the U.S. dropping this case? Uh, I mean, that you know, that's a possibility. I, what I would prefer to see would be for the U.S. to use its power to to take measures against China that will give China a strong incentive to do the right thing and let our people back into Canada. 
and certainly, you know, this matter, as you say, originated with the United States wanting to to prosecute Ms. Mung on serious charges of fraud, and so one would hope that there would be a moral obligation for the United States to go to bat for Canada on this and to use the extent of their power to bring about the desired result. You know, because of the the nature of the asymmetrical power relationship between Canada and China, they're freely able to, to pull our diplomats on leave off the street and subject them to 570 days of hell, but they would never dare do that to an American citizen. Yeah, we've talked about that earlier, how that would have changed had it been uh, two Americans that were taken. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald laurier Institute. Charles, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Great to speak with you again, Scott. Take care. Be well, Charles. Uh, let's bring in Bre- uh, Ben Roswell, President, Canadian International Council. He is with us now. Ben, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Although uh, I'm feeling sad for Michael Kovrig after that very... Uh, heartrending uh testimony by his uh his wife yesterday really brought home the uh the human suffering behind this story and with that once again uh the question comes up about canada uh maneuvering and and letting uh the huawei cfo go to avoid the extradition and the international uh treaty uh but but again that would equal hostage diplomacy is that the answer why do we keep bringing this up uh, well, I suppose critics of the government uh, keep bringing it up because the government keeps refusing uh, to do it. And uh, there is a human tragedy or two or more, depending on how many detainees uh, would be uh, tied up in this. This is one of those really difficult situations where the interests of two Canadian citizens, um, the sort of direct personal interests that they have, in, obviously in their freedom, might be in conflict with the interests of, uh, of all of us, which is in not standing up to a bully. It's a it's, it's a, um, a problem I've had to deal with in actual uh, hostage mm. uh, diplomacy, working in war zones where terrorists will abduct a Canadian citizen, and everyone wants the, the Canadian to be uh, to be let free. Um, but the problem is, as soon as you do that, you expose the next Canadian citizen to exactly right. the same kind of uh, kind of danger, and so that's why we have a an explicit ban on uh, hostage uh, diplomacy when it comes to like hostage exchange in, in terrorist situations. And I think the same logic applies when it comes to a great power. Obviously, China's not a terrorist entity, um, but it's the same logic of force that's behind this. That this is a powerful country that feels that it can browbeat a smaller one into submission. And if we agree to submit, then we'll just be browbeat into submission on the next issue with similar or some other kind of um, leverage. Uh, if they're willing to use human lives to exert political pressure, um, what else will they stop at? Eventually, someone has got to stand up to this country. Mm. Uh, surprised at China's reaction, especially with uh, the Huawei CFO posing for pictures the weekend before the decision, uh, supposedly with a victory sign. Um, do, do you think China thought we would just push this away, let it go? Yeah, it's a strange, uh, strange for them to anticipate, signal that they anticipated a, a positive response when they didn't get it. You know, diplomats fallible. It might be that Chinese diplomats uh, are not at reporting accurately on uh, on what's happening in Canada, what the real dynamics are. In an authoritarian system, there's always disincentives for state employees to speak truth to power. And mm. it might be that the Chinese diplomats are just not doing a very good job of relaying to Beijing the reality of how the Canadian system uh, operates, the fact that there genuinely is a division between the judicial branch and the executive branch. I know that... Uh, that's very difficult for an authoritarian government to understand because everything usually is all the shots are called by one. Hang on a sec, Ben. Let, let me interrupt you there, Ben. I understand that it's not the same ide- ideology. I understand uh, that they don't participate. They don't get it. But does that mean uh, does that mean they don't understand it? I, I can't see that because even though we we may not agree with the way they do things we certainly do understand where they're coming from and why they do what they do do they not give us that same respect do they are they not smart enough to know that we actually abide by this law this is is this new to them uh it's really hard to get inside their uh inside their heads so there could be a few things it could be just that uh it's um it's a career limiting move um to mention to xi jinping and yeah. um, that his gambit is uh 
is not likely. But uh, is is it not a country limiting but, move to not do that? <laughs> I, I guess because my next follow up question to this ban is: Is China not realizing what a black eye it is giving itself around the world? After for many years, it's appeared. You know, it was the image was it was the golden goose and everybody was going to be friendly. Now it's the act, exact opposite of that. Does does China realize the repercussions here that they're turning the tide against them? Well, you know, China as a rising power is trying to rewrite the rules. In the international system, um, countries like ours uh, abide by the rule of law. Um, China does not abide by the by the rule of law. And when countries do abide by the rule of law, it, it is a constraint on uh, you know on the warlords and the the thugs and and all those uh, others that just want to exert their power. Um, so there might actually be a beneficial uh, effect to China if it can get Canada. Um, to compromise on its own rule of law when uh, when it when China lays down the um, lays down the gauntlet, um, that will in- empower them in future uh, in future conflicts with other countries. And does that, it really matter you know, if they do that if they are so interwound in our economy, our healthcare system, our education system? They contribute lots. Uh, is that already happening? Are, are we already too dependent on them? We're going to have to find some kind of balance between. Um, the benefits of economic integration and uh, our ability to, to protect ourselves. There is a balance already, but I think most Canadians, as we've seen from recent polling, don't think that the, uh, that the, the balance is, uh, is quite correct. We probably are going to have to reduce our vulnerability in uh, some areas. I think the main path to success, though, is in realizing that we're not alone. We're not the only country that's getting bullied by China. Um, right now, Australia is getting really uh, badly hit by China because Australia is leading the charge of uh, nations that are calling for a transparent and open investigation into the origins of COVID and mm-hmm. the number of unnecessary deaths that followed from the uh, from information, critical information being hidden. Um, but there's all kinds of countries that are that are being browbeaten by, by one way or the other in China. And that's why I think um, it's quite an interesting call by the leader of the opposition, Andrew Scheer, saying that perhaps Canada should be coordinating between countries that are all uh, suffering at the hands of uh, Chinese Chinese bullying tactics. Uh, that's my next question here, Ben. It, that's my next question here, Ben. Should those countries unite uh, against the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's aggression, or with Donald Trump and the U.S. being in the state that it is, that's pretty tough right now. Well, a key, it'll be the, the key question there is whether we band up, band together with the Americans or not, because the Americans are the superpower. And so it would in- inevitably be uh, their gang that's being uh, being created. And that means that we might just be playing into some kind of Cold War dynamic, uh, you know, playing second fiddle to uh, to Washington, which um, Canada's going to, I think this will come as some surprise to Canadians, but we've actually been remarkably successful at um, following our own path in international affairs, a path that's sometimes right. parallel to the United States. And that might be might easier at this be, point. It might be um better for us to actually pursue uh, collaboration between countries uh, that, do, that don't include the United States, uh, you know, maybe keep the Americans informed. Um, but, you know, maybe Canada and Australia should uh, should team up and then start yeah. to, to build out from there so that it's not seen as something driven by Washington, but something driven by Canberra and Ottawa and the, the, uh, the capitals of the other liberal democracies um, that have had enough and that realize that it's only in combining our uh, our national uh, power um, that we might be able to stand up to this uh, this bully. You know, the United States acts as a bully sometimes. They haven't uh, apprehended yep. any of our citizens. No. Um, but, you know, there might also be benefits to having uh, liberal democracies also prevent a, a bit of a united front when it comes to crazy things the United States does. You know, the United States is defunding and, and trying to get out entirely out of the World Health Organization at the yeah. very time that we're trying to fight a world pandemic. Maybe the other countries of the world need to, uh, to band together. And say, Maybe oh, we have to stop depending. Yeah, you're right. Maybe the rest of the world has to stop depending on the United States as much as they depend on China in that respect. Uh, yeah. Where do you see this going? Because the obviously the Huawei CFO case, that's going to be in the courts for an awful long time. Now the charges are going through with the two Michaels. Uh, no seat on the UN Security Council. What's the next play for the government? Well, the judicial process uh, takes forever uh, if if uh, one of the parties uh, continues to contest and and Meng Wanzhou's lawyers are you know looking up every single rule in the book to try and 
uh, prevent her extradition. And because we're the rule of law, uh, you know, rule of law country, um, our, the, the legal process will just drag on as long as, uh, uh, as, long as it can. Um, and so I, I do think that we're going to be in this kind of stasis for a long time, which is a terrible, terrible situation for, uh, for, the, two, uh, for the two Michaels. Um, eventually, I suspect uh, there will be um, some kind of shift. Um, China has this pattern of focusing, putting one country in the doghouse, yeah. um, one after the other. They did it after, the, after there was a Nobel Prize offered to their uh, democracy activist, uh, Liu Xiaobo. And the, uh, it tends to be for about two years that the Chinese government keeps these countries in the doghouse. Eventually, you know, politics changes and different interests come to the surface and those countries get let out of the doghouse. Um, so that, that might actually happen. We're a year and a half into this. Uh, perhaps by the time we get to the to the winter or next summer, there'll be some different context, and China um, might see uh, might perceive its interests uh, differently. And so I think we have to hold firm, um, resist pressure where uh, where possible, put pressure back on China and collectively as much as we can, and uh, and ex- exercise strategic patience. Ben Roswell has been with us, President Canadian International Council, talking about the two Michaels and the Huawei CFO and, of course, the extradition case that has Canada caught in the middle. Ben, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Our borders are closed with the United States uh, and, you know, continue to be extended. Uh, Also issues in regard to migrant workers and keeping them safe. Uh, Donald Trump has taken a a sort of different turn on all of that. Let's bring in Joel Sandaluk, partner, my man, Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP, immigration lawyers. And Joel is with us now. Joel, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. First of all, Joel, let's look for some clarity here on the U.S. border because we sort of hear mixed messaging uh, that everything is closed, yet essential services are going, perhaps people uh, that travel from one side of the border to the other. Then all of a sudden we're hearing stories of people from Texas ending up in Banff. So what is the deal at the Canada-U.S. border? Well, the deal right now is that the border is closed to all except for essential travel. So that includes supply chain issues like food, medicine, things like that, and also uh, travel for immediate family members. So, for example, if you were an American citizen with a Canadian spouse, you'd be allowed to come into Canada to be with your wife. Uh, You'd still all the rules of quarantine and everything like that would still apply. That's the situation. Um, the reason people are winding up in Bath is because the United States is not contiguous. And so what happens is that Canada was admitting people to the, into Canada who said they were essentially traveling through Canada onto Alaska. So the idea would that be that they would not be remaining in Canada. They'd be in transit only. Uh, so they were being admitted and then apparently not being completely honest with the officers at the port of entry and winding up in Bath for a few weeks. Uh, to obviously the great dismay of people living in Alberta and in the BC. Uh, how so se- how, how serious a, how serious an offense is that when that happens? I understand they were fined. Well, what ha- it's a number of different types of offenses. There's offenses under the under the Quarantine Act, but there's also offenses under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, and it can actually result in imprisonment for making a material misrepresentation to an immigration officer at a port of entry. In this case. You know, uh, it, that's an extremely, uh, you know, severe punishment, uh, but it is absolutely a risk that people are taking whenever they make any kind of misrepresentation to an immigration officer that they may be prosecuted. And of course, in this, you know, in this particular time and environment, there's a much greater risk of that. So what is it like actually at border crossings right now? Is it an ongoing struggle for gar- uh, guards to figure out uh, or officers to figure out what is what is allowed, what isn't allowed? Is it not as busy? Um, how, wh- what is it like at the borders right now? So our experience is that the traffic at the border has actually diminished considerably. I mean, you can imagine how many people would typically be crossing uh, crossing the border on a daily basis, going both directions, and how many of those trips are simply not occurring. Uh, so as a result, the officers have more time to scrutinize the travel that they do or the traffic that they do have. Now, a few weeks ago, the Canadian border opened up a little bit more. And so, uh, for example, permitting uh, close relatives with close, close members of their family in Canada 
to enter. So for the last couple of months, I've received a number of phone calls from people saying, you know, uh, I'm American. I can't get to Canada where my wife and my very young child are. I spoke to a guy who was just heartbroken. He was an American citizen whose father was uh, essentially on his deathbed in his final hours in Canada, and he could not gain admission to the country. Um, and that was recently, those restrictions were recently lifted. So you still have to establish that you have that relative in Canada. We've been still advising people to go with things like marriage certificates, birth certificates, or other types of official documentation that can establish their relationship to Canadian. But uh, because the restrictions are still so intense, and because those, ra- those relationships are relatively easy to establish, um, I don't think officers are having a great deal of difficulty enforcing them. Um, where the situation is actually a little bit different is entering the United States, not at the land border, but at the airport. So this is something that in most cases affects Canadians heading south. So a lot of people, I think, think that this border closure was essentially a bilateral action, something that Canada and the United States both agreed to do because both countries closed in were uh, northern or southern border respectively um, at the same time. But what they actually are is each country took unilateral action uh, simultaneously. So, for example, you know, people who are not able to get into Canada, whether at land border crossings, at airports, or what have you, unless they are subject to some of the specific exempt- exemptions that the Canadian government outlined. On the other hand, um, traveling into the United States at a land border can be very difficult. In our experience, entering the United States at an airport is a completely different situation. And although you may be examined by an officer at, a port of, at the airport about your reasons for going to the United States and whether or not those reasons are really truly essential, um, people are getting across the border on a fairly routine basis, according to what we've heard. So it's, are people, it's really are, different. So are people, uh, yeah, yeah, obviously we were talking about vacationers earlier on, so would people be able to get on a plane, fly to a U.S. city, and then just continue on as if, you know, w- w- unobstructed? Yeah, essentially, once you, I mean, you know, for Canadians, because uh, our U.S., because of the, the pre-clearance we have at uh, airports with flights to the United States, you know, once they've been admitted to the United States by an officer at a Canadian airport, uh, they're essentially domestic travelers once they enter the United States. So if you were going to enter, you know, tra- fly to New York and then travel on to L.A., you know, once you make it into the U.S., you're essentially a domestic traveler, and it's really not an issue. So theoretically, and let's get back to vacationers and, and people who would cross the border through the course of the summer months, as we were talking about earlier, obviously not allowed, or you're going to have an issue getting across the border into the United States or vice versa. But if you wanted to load the family on a, a family on a plane and fly to Florida, you could have a yeah. vacation. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, to some extent, it's accurate. I think you're more likely to be able to have that, to be able to take that trip if you fly. Um, you're still you're still going to have to answer questions from a uh, customs uh, uh, from a border officer at an airport. Um, and different the problem with the the way that the ban has been enforced is that a lot of discretion has been left up to the officers at the, at the airport. So if you wanted to say you know could you do it, the answer is maybe uh, probably. Um, I wouldn't say certainly by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, there is also a very real scenario where your admission to the United States may be denied uh, because, they, you know, the purpose of your travel isn't deemed to be essential or essential enough. Um, you know, the best advice, honestly, for Canadians this summer is to stay home. You know, yeah. It's a big country and, you know, traveling to the U.S. or outside of Canada probably doesn't make a lot of sense right now anyway. Uh, as an immigration lawyer, surprised to see this, uh, this uh, restriction in place for so long? Yeah, actually I am. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and the amount of travel that goes, uh, traffic goes between Canada and the United States is extraordinary. It's a tremendous amount of travel and traffic. And uh, the idea that it can just be, you know, shut down or slowed to a trickle um, almost at a moment's notice uh, is probably never going to stop amazing me. Uh, This is one of those things where it's like a, you know, when they first started talking about closing the border, my first reaction was, that they can't, that there's just too much, it's too big, and it's too busy. Um, and obviously, you know, events have proven me wrong.
Um, is anybody upset with this? I mean, you know, again, when this happens, nobody seems to object and everybody, oh, the U.S. and Canada have decided to keep the border closed and extend it for another 30 days or whatever. Um, is one side more cranky about this than the other? Or is everybody in agreement this is the right thing to do? I think there's a general agreement that this is the right thing to do. And I think the thing that was really, um, that was upsetting to a number of Canadians initially was the complete restriction of travel to people to can- on people to Canada. So close family members were being denied admission to the country. I think there are, a lot of people felt like that was fairly arbitrary, especially because those people had not just a legitimate reason for coming to Canada, but in many cases an incredibly compelling reason to come to Canada. And, um, you know, that, that felt fairly arbitrary. I think the government adjusted by walking that back a little bit and, and easing those restrictions. But when I speak to people now, there seems to be kind of a general consensus that, you know, this is appropriate for right now in the circumstances. And there's a sense that, it'll, you know, that, you know, the government says it's appropriate in a month or at the end of, end of July, they'll probably be okay to go along with it. I think the part of the reason why a lot of people were okay with it was because so much of the early American outbreak was in border states along, especially New York, but also, you know, New Hampshire, uh, also Michigan. And I think there was a lot of fear on the part of Canadians who live very close to those northern states. Um, and as the, as the outbreak has subsided in those states, I think there's going to be a greater uh, appetite, I think, for reopening the border and facilitating travel. Is there one side that wants the border closed more than others? For example, I, I'm sure Canadians, because, as you said, the pandemic seems to have... It uh, seems to still be uh, out of control in some states down there, whereas here we seem to be getting a, a handle on it. How is it playing in the U.S. that Canada wants the border closed, or is it, no, no, they don't want us in? It's hard to say, to be honest. I, sp- I talk to a lot of Americans who are disappointed that they can't come to Canada. A lot of Americans you know, will typically take trips up here to camp or fish or, or whatever in the summertime, and a lot of them have uh, vacation homes here. Um, so I do talk to a lot of Americans who are disappointed. Uh, but generally speaking, I think there's, uh, you know, it, 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 it might just be sort of a feature of this whole experience. But there seems to be a general acceptance that this is an extraordinary time and that extraordinary measure, measures are warranted. I mean, as time passes, I think there will be less and less acceptance of that, uh, of that situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as it stands right now, I think there's still a, a fair bit of uh, – a fair bit of acceptance of that situation. How long do you see, and I'm sure you get us this, asked this question every day, but how long do you see this ban in place? Uh, it's Honestly, it's, it's really hard to say. Um, I would hope, uh, you know, Canada is starting to reopen. A lot of courts, you know, court functions are starting to come back. A lot of government functions are starting to return. Uh, my hope is that by, you know, by mid to late July, um, the border traffic is a little bit more broadly open. Uh, the U.S., of course, has recently announced further immigration restrictions uh, just yesterday. So that won't affect Canadians as much as it'll affect travelers from other nations. Uh, but the United States is clearly of a mind to continue to restrict immigration uh, to that country. So, you know, how it, how it all plays itself out, to be honest, it's going to be very, very hard to say. But Your I, thoughts... In a, hmm? No, I was just going to, sorry to interrupt, I was going to say your thoughts on this latest action by the U.S. to uh, extend, you know, the work visa ban and and uh, not allowing any green cards or that sort of thing, your thoughts on this? Um, it's something that Canada hasn't seen fit to do. Um, Canada recognizes generally that uh, immigration and the admission of foreign workers is incredibly important to, uh, not just to our culture, but to us culturally, but really to our economy. Um, the United States is taking a different tack. Um, it's been criticized by a lot of, you know, large-scale employers in the U.S., especially uh, tech giants like Google or Apple uh, or Amazon. And I, my, my gut reaction as an immigration lawyer is that this is ultimately not in their national interest, um, that there's probably ways to restrict travel to the United States that are a little bit more surgical uh, than, you know, than what they're trying to do. But partly this is, you know, this is an election year for them down there. And Immigration has been a, a very hot-button issue for a lot of Americans for a very long time. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with something that's so important to so many people, it's hard to really say how much a policy is dictated by, you know, by, by need or by necessity and how much is dictated by emotion. And I think in the United States, uh, it feels like their immigration policy has been 
governed by emotion for uh, a little while now. And I, I think, you know, I think that's probably how it'll continue to play itself out. You know, generally speaking, though, Canada benefits from this. It's one of the things that, you know, a lot of Canadians, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, sneer at the United States and look at the things that they're doing, whether you're talking about refugees or the admission of foreign workers or the Muslim ban from a few years ago. Uh, Canada is a massive beneficiary of the, uh, you know, instability of immigration policy in the United States. Hmm. Uh, You know, it's not because Canada becomes a better country. But the stability, the comparative stability in the Canadian immigration system is much more appealing to foreign nationals who are looking at immigrating to North America. You know, you could imagine any decision that you were trying to make. Um, if you were buying a house, one house had a pre-inspection report and one house didn't. You didn't know what mm. you were going to get. You know, that second house with the, or that first house with the report is a lot more appealing just because you know what you're dealing with. And the same applies for people who are thinking about immigrating. Uh, lots of chatter in regard. You were talking about uh, migrant workers, and, and certainly with our growing season here, a lot coming back and forth across the border, especially from Mexico. Now there's been issues in regard to uh, those people coming up here and then getting affected with COVID-19. How, how do you manage this? It is, it is a terrible situation. I mean, you know, one of the things you have to remember about people, uh, foreign workers who are coming up to work on farms or vineyards, is that their their work in Canada is absolutely essential to uh, the security of the Canadian food supply. We all depend on them, on their ability to work and their ability to be healthy. And uh, the problem is that the environments that a lot of foreign workers work in are not really conducive to a uh, you know to uh, containing COVID-19. A lot of them live and work in dormitories. A lot of them are you know they even though they're outside frequently, which is helpful. Um, because of the communal conditions that they live in, uh, you know, transmission seems to be much more, a uh, much higher risk. And I think that you know, we really have to get a handle on that because we really do genuinely need these people. One of the things that's actually been great, uh, a great sort of bright spot in the news, has been that uh, the government of Quebec and the Canadian government as well have really talked about uh, the possibility of allowing people who come to Canada claiming asylum to remain because many of those people work in essential jobs mm-hmm. in whether it's healthcare, food services, uh, or something else has really become incredibly important. And they've assumed those jobs at considerable personal risk. So it's, it's one of the things that I think when we talk about, you know, how do we, how do we manage COVID-19, we also have to talk about how do we treat uh, the people who are really on the front lines for us, many of whom are, you know, people who've been living on the margins in Canadian society and, uh, you know, frankly, deserve a break uh, as a result of their service, in my view. Uh, one other question in regard to emigration. I mean, as you said, Canada is a country of immigrants. This happens all the time. It's an ongoing thing. How much has COVID-19 ground this to a halt for families? Uh, it's hard to say exactly. It is Things have clearly slowed. Um, the federal government is still processing applications. They are still issuing visas and granted landing. Uh, but we can see the volume, uh, you know, diminish considerably. Uh, you can just, it's, it's one of those things that I haven't seen the most recent statistics or what uh, the impact of COVID-19 has been on immigration. Uh, but it seems like Canada is going to miss its uh, immigration target this year by a considerable degree. And uh, you can kind of feel it when you do this every day. Um, you can kind of feel things slowing down. I mean, the corollary of that is that now I can start to feel things coming back a little bit with the courts opening with other provinces being ahead of Ontario, I can feel um, I can feel things kind of picking up again and, and returning to returning to something resembling normalcy. Uh, but to be honest, I think this is going to be, you know, a bit of a lost year in terms of Canada's immigration mm-hmm. plan. Joel Sandaluck has been with us, partner, my man, Sandaluck Kingwell, LLP, immigration lawyers talking about borders and all things related to COVID-19. Joel, thanks for the time and insight as always. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.